As we uh, saw in just that little presentation of our kind of uh, vision for years 10 to 15 as Christchurch Earlsfield, there's so, so much to do, isn't it? Isn't there? Uh, we're taking a little brief excursion uh, as we go through uh, the letter of 1 Peter. And we do so with an eye to the world around us as we know the reality. Rarely are you or I being stopped in the street with people saying, Oh, 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 you please tell me what happened at church. Please tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Has that happened this week? I doubt it. Being a Christian today, as it was uh, when this letter was written, was tough. Should we therefore just kind of sit back, fatalistically kind of allowing the culture around us to mould us, accepting just people don't want to know? Did you want to know before you were a Christian? I doubt it. Why bother? Why bother? We look sort of five years forward as a church. Why bother with some kind of idealistic strategy or kind of vision? Why bother praying for friends? Why bother trying to reach and build and train and send as a church? Why don't we just all resolve to sit back today, uh, to blend right in and keep ourselves to ourselves? That sounds like a year, five years of wonderful comfort, doesn't it? Well, Peter writes this letter to churches facing similar hostilities as we do today. And whose temptation will be similar as well, to just compromise. And simply he says to them a number of times in the last chapter, as I showed you last week, verses 8 onwards, he says, stand firm, be steadfast, be strong. Last week from chapter 1, we saw uh, Peter reminding them, of, and, and us as well, as we hear these words, of our privileged individual um, identity. Before God, we are scattered, elect exiles. And we should, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, expect all kinds of trials. The words literally there is multicolored trials. But of course, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, that is, because of his life, death and resurrection, uh, and through our faith in that, we are safe with God for eternity in his love. And Peter is writing to this young group of churches in the places mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to them, that's in eastern Turkey, as we now know it. He's writing that they're facing all these trials... He reminds them, just like the Lord Jesus Christ in, in chapter 1 or 11, hey, it's trials now, glories to come. A few trials for a bit, an eternity in glory. And this is our identity. All kinds of trials now, glories to come, but the life that we live now is not without hope. In fact, Peter says in chapter 1 verse 8, he's filled with such an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because of the hope he has in Jesus. That is our unique and privileged identity. And building on that, this week in chapter 2, Peter calls the Christians he writes to, to stand firm, to be steadfast and strong. How? He shows us our distinctive purpose together as a church, as God's set-apart people. See, if, we're st if we are to stand firm for Jesus in this world, at your workplaces, at your banks and your doctor's surgeries and your, uh, wherever you work, at home, supermarket, anything, if you're an artist like Ali, if you're going to stand firm, 
If we're going to reach people in this area for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to stand firm together. And there's three points on your sheets, and that, this is where he's going to go. We stand firm as a church, as the new temple of God, declaring the praises of God, living as, I've used the old word because I like it so much, living as aliens for the glory of God. Firstly then, on your outlines, first point, we stand firm as a church, as the new temple of God. Look down at verse 4 if you're with me, uh, with me uh, on your Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 4. Look there, Peter uh, says to Christians that we come to Jesus. Who is he? He's the living stone. And he's using languages here uh, of the Old Testament uh, temple. But as we come to him, we become living stones of this spiritual house. Now he's using all this kind of Old Testament temple language, showing us that as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, his life is counted to us and we become like him before God. Therefore, no longer is the temple filled with gold and all those precious jewels. Uh, why was that? To reflect the glory, literally the Shekinah glory of God there. Now we as the church, being built together manifestly reflect the glory of God together. And Peter is continually, continually pushing his readers to see that the old way of drawing near to God and his glory, going to the temple, using the priests, all the sacrifices, that way is gone and a new way has arrived. We individually, but also together as a church, have begun the place where God dwells. And where his glory is made known. Now, we all know God has always dwelt uh, in his glory amongst his people. Think about the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night in Exodus. Then in the tabernacle with Moses in Exodus. Then we get the temple. 1 Kings 8, for example. Then God departs from the temple. And God's people were judged and the exile occurs. Uh, and they're taken off to Babylon. After the exile, we get the prophets coming. And there in Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, it says this, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Essentially what he's saying there is there's something great has come. There is something better that God is going to provide. And faithful Ezra had to wait 400 years. And then Jesus walks into the temple and recorded in Luke 19, it says this, his presence, namely Jesus, was the greater glory of that temple. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus himself is the new and better temple of God, the dwelling place of God among men. And at Pentecost, you get in Acts chapter 2, Jesus himself, but also then his people, become the dwelling place of God as he gives us his spirit. We become the place where God's spirit and his glory dwells. And so now in the age of the church, the people of God, you and I, are the true temple of God because we are the place where God dwells by his spirit. Now looking forward, beyond five years, a little bit further, maybe, well, we don't know, it could be now, it could be right now. Jesus will come again. And when he returns, that temple where God dwells will then be the whole earth, Romans 8 tells us. What about now? Well, in anticipation of that great event to come, we as Christians, with the Spirit in our hearts, we're given the privilege of now 
offering ourselves, as we saw just a couple of weeks as we were looking at Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, offering ourselves as sacrifices to God. That is, we become these living stones of God's temple. But we see more than that here. Verse 5, we're being built by God. That little phrase is in the, in the present progressive, in the grammatical terms. What that means is, Christians, right now, if you're a Christian here today, you are being built by God and will continue to be built by God. And notice a we. We plural. That is, we as a church are growing together. Being built, it is never an individual process. And as living stones, we are each dependent on one another. There is a, an interdependence uh, here, a big image here, and it should help us realise that if we, are build, build, sorry, if we are being built into the lives of people here at church, we all, every single one of us, however young, however old, have a part to play. You all have gifts which I do not. You all have wisdom which I do not have. And everyone else around here does not have. You have different insights and we all need each other. We are stronger together and only together we'll be able to stand firm. And whether we like it or not, that is God's way. However much you like to be on your own, doing things on your own, being all that kind of individualistic kind of way, I'm sorry, that is not God's plan. The church is by its nature communal. And so, for example, I mean, I'm not getting anyone for, you know, if you miss something like, you know, coming to church or a home group, you know, kind of, yes, there's very good reasons sometimes for that. And I'm not getting anyone in that way. Uh, you may be tired, all of those things, but don't think individually for a moment about this. I hope you realise that by not going, you're also not allowing the group to access the gifts that you have been given by God for building up his church. All those unique and precious gifts that you have. A stone is missing if you're not there. And when a stone is missing, the place gets wobbly. They need you and you need them. Obviously, if you're sick, please don't go. That won't build up. That'll just make everyone crumble. And uh, we'll all be sick and horrible. And that's not, you know, there's not practical things to add to that, of course, isn't there? But you get the picture. But what are we being built up together by God on? The foundation is critical here, isn't it? And uh, as with any building, the foundation of us as God's church, here we see, do you see? It's, it's Christ. It's on the foundation of Christ. See, the most important, if you ever built a building, I have no clue how to build a building, but if you do, I know some engineers and stuff out here, but yeah, if, if you build a building, the most important stone is the first stone you place in, the, the foundation stone, or here, and in ancient buildings, it was called the corner stone. And that stone would be placed in the foundations at the, it's, it's kind of architecturally strongest point. And the whole both alignment of the building, but also the strength of the building depended on that one single cornerstone. And the picture being used here is that that is Christ when it comes to his church. 
because he gives not only the strength to the church, but he also gives the direction to the church through his word and by his spirit. Here's of verse 6 here, the, the chosen and precious cornerstone. But Jesus, the living foundational cornerstone, is described, notice, in two ways here, in verse 4. And it, kind of, it becomes a kind of launch pad for the rest of the passage. You see, he's Christ, the living stone. He's rejected by men, but then he is chosen, and precious, chosen by God and precious to him. Let's look at those terms individually. First, it rejected. Now, this is builder's talk. Again, I have no clue here, but, you know, this is an ancient kind of language of builder's talk. You pick up a stone, you look at it, and you go, uh -uh, no, chuck it out. Uh, That one won't work. You reject it. After examination, you go, no, thank you. And it's a picture, isn't it, of rejection that we do with Jesus every day. We can, in a sense, have Jesus as our cornerstone or not. And we can make something else the cornerstone who gives strength and direction for our life that day. Often that's just ourselves, isn't it? When we neglect God. What happens, though, when your cornerstone shakes, when your whole life shakes? I, don't, I, I remember going to university. Many of you, I've shared this before, and I know some of you shared it. You go to university, you think you're the best at everything, don't you? You've left school, and you're kind of like, oh, I'm the best at chess at school, and I'm the best at, you know, tiddlywinks and all this kind of stuff. And you, you get to university, and you suddenly realize there's a tiddlywink champion of all of history there, and he's better than you. And you're going, kind of oh, no, I'm rubbish now. And everyone looks around you. And it's really, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? What if your identity is is built on being the best at a particular sport? What if your identity is is built on being the best at your workplace? The best banker or the the best doctor or the best artist? If If your whole foundation stone is built on who you are and what you can do, What if that cornerstone is the source of all your strength and stability? What happens when you realise when you're no longer the best? It's crushing, isn't it? What if you build your life uh, uh, on the attention of others? Perhaps on the attention of the opposite sex. it's, It's crushing, isn't it, when you don't get it? See, we all build our lives on a cornerstone. And the point of this passage is, make sure it's Jesus. Verse 6, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Only one cornerstone remains strong, as we see in verse 7. But consider the warning. I'm I'm scooting through, but look at verse 8. It is a sobering, sobering warning. You have a choice. And it's either build your life on Christ in his living church or encounter that stone, that rock that will make you fall away from God's love into his eternal judgment. It is an absolutely terrifying image. And so the plea is, come. Come to the precious cornerstone. He's got to be precious to you. You not only just build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to find him precious. He's got to be as precious as, as life is itself. Imagine if, you, if you're in a horrible situation, I mean, I don't, we don't want to go there, but if you're in that horrible situation, 
and you're able to buy your life. Someone's holding a gun at your head and you're asked to sell everything that you have, your house, every, every bit of possessions that you got. Would you not give them everything to save your life? Of course you would. It's precious to you. The point here is that Jesus is to be infinitely more precious. Everything is, ex- is expandable, expendable in comparison. And that is why Peter says, come to him in verse 4. Meaning, depend on him, yes, but it's more than that. It's, it's to find him, as he's shown here, he's precious. Love him, adore him. Yeah, it sounds weird, but it isn't when you consider who he is. He's the one who has been rejected, and, but he's chosen by God to face God's judgment for your sin so that you don't have to. And why did he do that? And here's the mind-blowing one. Because you're precious to him. And it's only when you see how precious you are to Jesus that you might actually begin to see how precious he really is. And then you might stand firm in him and for him. Come to the precious cornerstone. And who do you need to help to remember that Jesus is the precious cornerstone? Well, look around you, because that's who you've been given. God, of course, will. That's his ultimate responsibility. He's the one who builds. But we need each other, because we've been built up together. Stand firm as a church. We've seen the new temple of God. And then and only then, as you see these things, we begin to see how verses 9 to 12, we're going to look at these much more briefly, are possible. And not only that, not, not you just looking at the kind of thing, oh, this might be possible. You should be seeing as you look forward to see that there'll be a joy, a delight, a passion. Christians, we're to stand firm as the new temple of God. But what doing? Declaring the praises of God. Second point. The contrast is, is striking between verse 9, isn't it? And then you get to... The verse 8 and then verse 9 begins, but, but you are a chosen people. There's those who stumble and fall, but, Peter says, you're a chosen people. That is to say, you were chosen before the beginning of time to be one of God's people. And then he goes on, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we're not talking ethnic or geographical divides here. We're talking of a people who are in a covenant relationship with God for eternity. Basically he's saying there, covenant means God is on your side. He's not going to let go. God's special possession we see also. That is to say your his possession belonged to him for his purposes, namely his glory. You've been bought with a price, namely so that you have a purpose in this life. This is spelt out in the end of verse 9. As Peter says to the Christians, you are all of those wonderful things, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare, that you may declare, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Peter again is, is reassuring them here. That there are new people of God. Verse uh, verse 10 simply goes one step further to show this truth. Once you were not a people, but now you are. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so for all that and more, the purpose of our salvation is to declare his praises. And that will look in all sorts of things, right? In the way you live, the way you go about your work, the way you do family life, but also how you speak and what you speak about and dare to speak about Jesus, perhaps. And all of those things, perhaps alone, feel quite hard. Maybe even possible. But as God's holy people, as his church, we can stand firm together. Firm in our salvation in Christ, the solid foundation, encouraging each other as we declare his praises. But all of this, you've got to know who you are. What is your identity? Your scattered elect exiles, growing together as living stones as the new temple of God, built by God on the foundation of Christ. This is who you are today. If you're a Christian here today, that is your identity, individually and also corporately. But those together then lead you to the purpose that you may declare the praises of God. Now, the specifics of what that looks like are then spelt out in the following chapters. We're going to be looking at that next week. But we as individuals and corporately as a church have one main purpose, and that is to declare the praises of God. Or as we've seen in our kind of 10 to 15 kind of vision thing, it is that every life bears fruit for Jesus. It's so easy as in a church to become like a bit of a social club, to talk about anything other than Jesus. I mean, the question is, do you declare uh, the praises of Jesus to one another? Do you delight in Jesus to one another? Do you encourage that you trust in Jesus with one another? How distinctive are your conversations at work or, or in the way that you work? Have you encouraged one another to be praying about other friends that they might come and hear the good news about Jesus and then declare the praises of God? It's not easy, is it? And we know, chapter 1, verse 6, we're going to face multicolored trials as we, as we go about this. But is Jesus not worth it? Are you going to stand firm declaring his praises? More practically, just as these next two verses, as we close, are kind of the, the lead to the following, kind of the more practical last chapters, and we're going to look at those next week. How do we do that? We see in verse 11 and 12, living as aliens... For the glory of God. Let me just refresh our minds of verse 11 and 12 again. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, now literally where there is aliens, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives. We do that by being foreigners and exiles, abstaining and living in this world. So, what is that not? It's not being sort of kind of fundamentalist, separate from society, with exclusive beliefs that few uphold. And it's also not the other end of the spectrum, you know, kind of liberal thinking, blending into culture around us with no kind of doctrinal or kind of moral ethical requirements at all. It's not fundamentalism, it's not liberalism. 
And both of those two extremes are motivated by the same things. I don't know if you ever spotted that in this world. They're motivated by obtaining power and avoiding suffering. But the Bible says you're neither to be a fundamental nor a liberal. We're to be, as the original is, aliens and strangers, foreigners and exiles. Which is essentially being both of them together. Fundamentally liberal, if that is the term. I don't think it is, but I made one up. Why? Because like the fundamental religions of the world, we do have exclusive beliefs. But we want to be part of a culture in which we live and contribute to that culture. So we're like liberals in that. We want to integrate into the culture, which is why that term foreigners literally means resident foreigners, resident aliens. It's like some of you South Africans here. It's great to see you, by the way. <clears throat> there is a permanent alien status that we have in this world, foreigners. But unlike liberals, we have a doctrinal framework to live by. We are liberal fundamentalists, literally. Which means we should expect two responses to close. People will accuse us of doing wrong. And also, people will recognise our good deeds. Let me finish with this. This little bit of history, if you like. There was much debate in the Roman world about the cultural beliefs of Christians. Their exclusive and kind of moral, ethical views uh, come from the Bible. It was, it was assumed by the Roman governors and leaders that it would lead to a kind of a very exclusive but detached life. And they thought Christians, there was lots of talk about it, they thought Christians were going to be terrible for their society. What did the Romans experience? Now, despite the very exclusive views of the Christians, they lived a far more inclusive life than most. They were more loving, they were more accepting, they were more tolerant of other people's views, uh, more giving to the poor than any other group whatsoever. But the problem is, fundamental religion always leads to terror, and the Romans knew that, probably because they could see it in themselves. And certainly in recent history we've seen that, haven't we, with people like Stalin and so on. In the atheism that he propagated, it brought terror to more people, so many people, more than any other of all the religious wars of all the 2,000 years before. More people died under him. Fundamental religion leads to terror, it seems. And so the Romans thought this. They thought they were terrified. What would happen? Detached from the culture, they thought Christians would damage the economy. What happened? The complete opposite. Because it all depends, doesn't it, what your fundamental is. What if the fundamental, the cornerstone of your faith is a man? Why don't you just cast your eyes down to verse 24 of chapter 2. What if the fundamental of what you believe what if the cornerstone of your faith is a man who he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness? And by his wounds you have been healed. Yes, Christians, we have exclusive views. Therefore, we will need to abstain from parts of this culture to honour our saviour, the cornerstone. And in so doing, we should expect hostility. Hostility. 
but we do need to get close enough to people so that they may see the fundamental of our faith, namely the cornerstone, and his name is Jesus. They need to see the good deeds that come from knowing him, and they need to know him as their Lord and Saviour, so that with us they might declare his praises and glorify God. We're not to be separate from this world, and nor should we attack this world. We are to be the living church of Jesus Christ in this world, standing firm for his glory. Let's pray that that is so. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for, our, for your word to us, the Bible. Thank you that it is complete. Thank you that it is everything that we need for life this week and for our salvation. And thank you that you reveal not only just the way to, to know you for eternity, but also the way to, to live out our faith day by day, trusting in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. May we do that. And may we live such good lives among those, our friends, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.